Welcome to Silicon UK In Focus podcast. Silicon UK is the leading source of IT news, analysts, features, and interviews covering technology that impacts your business. I'm your host, David Hull, the Editor-in-Chief here at Silicon UK. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Julie Dawson, the Director of Policy and Regulation at the digital identity provider, Yoti. Founded in 2014 by building a free consumer app that puts identification on your phone, the Yoti app is designed with privacy at its core, giving individuals a safe way to share personal details with businesses and individuals. Welcome, Julie. Thank you very much, David. Well, thanks for coming on today. I think the topics that we're going to cover today, I think, are, are something that is kind of in the news a lot, I think, and it's something that I think businesses and individuals are paying certainly more and more attention of. Um, but before we sort of get into our conversation, um, a bit about yourself, maybe your, your background, and what maybe what you were doing before uh, before Yoti. Certainly, yes. Yeah. So um, I've spent about 30 years now in the tech industry in a range of different areas. And the last thing, just prior to Yoti, I'd been CEO of an online donations platform. And then I'd started to look at kids' STEM activities, the science, technology, engineering, digital arts and maths, and looking at how you could do activities and camps for kids to try and build that creativity and digital skills. So looking at how in an outdoor environment you might build an assault course and then how you might build one in a virtual world. Um, So looking at at that angle, really, and at Yoti, my role is very different. We do actually, by the way, sponsor Coda Dojo for kids' digital making, which keeps on that interest. But we're looking at how people can prove who they are and how old they are face-to-face and online. And my role is really looking at how do consumers trust that? How do regulators trust what we're doing? How does civil society understand and trust what we're doing? So it's looking at the ethical framework around Yoti's digital identity offering, looking at the different accreditations around data responsibility and cybersecurity, and then also looking at our government relations in all the countries where we operate, and specifically at the moment, the different trust frameworks evolving around digital identity. Clearly, you've got a background which uh, touches on tech for you know the last sort of three decades. So the you know the experience is, is uh, it's an interesting one because it's, it links to uh, links to STEM, then it links to identity and kind of where we are with the digital space. It's it's an interesting one, I think. You know those conversations. I guess what I wanted to kick this off with really is, I suppose, a high level question about just that, isn't it? We seem to be moving towards, I guess, a, a better environment where mobiles obviously are, are central to our lives. Uh, you know, none of us can, can, really, can really run our lives without them, certainly not business. We have legislation which is in, in development, which is all around uh, the topics uh, you know, which, which Yoti uh, sort of touches on. Do you think we're actually going to enter a sort of a new, a new era where digital identity can be proven, can be trusted with ultimately digital systems? Um, yeah, do you feel that... In the past, not so much, but we, we really are paying attention to that now. We are really entering a, a kind of new age of um, where you can trust uh, a system to prove who you are uh, online. So this is a really interesting question, David, and I, I think you almost have to step back and see mm, yeah. we've been trusting for a long time physical documents, and there has to be an, be an admission that that wasn't perfect. Um, we've seen recently the, the big case of fraud with, with people under COVID applying for furlough or business loans, etc. And seeing how the, the, the previous method didn't work either. There's been a phrase coined by Dave Birch, one of the identity gurus, which is document theatre. 
And for a long time, we expected that it was fine for someone to rock up, maybe to an HR director, maybe to a lawyer or to solicitors, show a document, and somehow that person at the other end of the desk be trained to border control level, be able to look at that document and know that that is a real 2016, you know, Lithuanian driving license of the second order. Whereas actually, if you were a document examiner, you'd know that without kit, without training, that was not possible. So whereas 100 years ago, it was really easy if you were the local solicitor, or even 10, 20 years ago, maybe if you were hiring someone, you already had prior knowledge, they might have been from a local community, that's no longer the case. We're hiring people from all over the world, entering into contracts with people from all over the world, either as businesses or as individuals. So how do you build that trust digitally and remotely? And that is why the likes of the Financial Action Task Force, the likes of the Land Registry, and now looking at right to work and right to rent in the UK, the government has realised that to streamline onboarding and to combat the professionalism of fake And the fraud world, you actually have to meet that face to face and you have to have companies that have invested seriously in this and look at what is the best that humans can achieve, what is the best that technology can achieve, but also, as you've rightly alluded to, what is the oversight that is needed for that in terms of data responsibility and cybersecurity. It's an interesting, I guess, evolution. For me, it's it's all about trust, isn't it? Do I trust that document? Do I trust that however you're going to identify someone. In fact, I sort of rubbed up against that recently. I wanted to make a change to something on uh, one of my bank accounts. You know, I did an online chat, absolutely fine. I said, well, can you just you know, go in and change uh, literally just a, a name, just literally what, 25 characters on a screen, can you do that? No, we can't. Uh, you need to write a physical letter with a wet signature and take that to your branch. You need to do that. So we, we trust that it is you who's changing that information. So I did that, went along, presented my piece of paper, and no one checked my identity. I could have been anyone who's walked in with that piece of paper. No one checked it was me. It was a kind of crazy situation where I've had to rock up with this piece of paper and you don't check who I am. Put that in the digital space when it's even more difficult to, I guess, identify people. Has that kind of been the... I guess the, the raison d'etre really for all of this is to try and prove who you are in these different spaces. And how do you do that? Absolutely. Yes. So the founder of, of Yoti, Robin Toombs, had two very different experiences that sort of led him down this route. So one was as the co-founder of a large online gaming business and knowing that about 15% of people going through those know your customer checks were thin file and didn't often have forms of ID. We know there's over a billion people on the planet, 24% of UK adults with no photo ID. So that whole process was painful for the organisation and painful for the individual and was at risk of, you know, imposters. And the other experience he had was very different in the physical world, but going to one of the sort of tough mudder Sparta, Spartan races type events and seeing people in long queues in a muddy field and stood in document queues, you know, all the A to C's line up here, dish out your driving licence if you're, you know, to sign your health waiver before you do your physical event and hopefully stay healthy at the end of it and get your document back. So both that in-person check, he thought, goodness, that's got to be brought up to date. And the online check, he thought there's got to be a better way. And that was very much the origins of Yoti seven years ago. 
Now, I also think it's an interesting conversation, particularly today. We all see how it appears to be very easy to clone someone's identity, to steal someone's identity. The whole development of, uh, sort of deep fakes is, is quite scary. In the security context, of course, in maybe the entertainment context, it's great because you can bring back uh, you know, deceased actors from make new films. And, uh, fantastic, that's, that's great. But in the security sense, things like deep fakes and their ilk, that's kind of scary because... Can they really copy, you know, me and my face? Because these days, of course, with uh, various digital devices and uh, banking in particular, you log on with with Face ID. So what's your take on that? Is the technology like that kind of running ahead of security? Or are we in a good place to be able to let that technology develop, but still be able to have good security and, and good identification? So it is really important that this ongoing research from tech companies on the right side of the fence continues. And most of the banking world, for instance, is looking at multimodal biometrics, so not just relying on one biometric. And similarly, absolutely, you you have to look at the fact that you will have criminals operating internationally and looking at what is the investment they think is worth for the return on investment they will get for activities. So it's you know imperative and incumbent on organisations like ours to absolutely work closely with allies in the field, work closely with also civil society, but the bodies in law enforcement and fraud prevention, so such as CIFAS in the UK, that are looking at all the different angles, both around document fraud and then the different forms of presentation attack, be that holograms, be that videos, be that still images, the more sophisticated and the less sophisticated. And absolutely, there's a whole raft of those. Tying that this carbon life form human that is in possession of this specific document that is not tampered or fake or fraudulently obtained genuine is not an easy feat, given we've over 190 countries across the world. There's a lot of different document templates. And then, as you say, there's increasing spoofing approaches that are evolving. And that is an ongoing process. And many brains in many companies are, are working hard at all of those different angles from the R&D perspective. Well, absolutely. And I see a, a, a lot of that. Really attacking it from various angles. It seems to be, be a um, not one thing. It's, it's an ecosystem of various parallel technologies, uh, which will probably come together to create a usable and trustworthy identity space. Do you want to ask you, actually, I guess right at the top of this is, couldn't we just resolve this by just imposing, I guess, a state-backed ID? That's your ID. That's who you are. We back that. It's trustworthy because of whatever job done. So there are some countries around the world where, indeed, that has already been and could well be the answer. I don't sit in in, in UK government. I sit in a, a company that's trying to help citizens around the world prove who they are, or businesses know who their customers are. So we're not trying to solve for any specific government how they approach this area. But I do absolutely think that there has to be inclusive ways for people to safely prove who they are. And the approaches that are created have to be in the public interest and not just in the interest of a company. I also think it's incumbent on governments, however, to look at what the private sector is doing. And I would say, grudgingly maybe, but albeit, you know, over the last few years, there has been incredible progress in terms of of that dialogue between governments, plural, 
and hopefully improving with civil society, but with organisations. So there has been a lot of, albeit slow, but dialogue between the private sector and the public sector for trust frameworks. We're part of those discussions in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, in the UK. Um, those would be also continuing across the EU with EIDAS. And it is really important that that inclusion element for particularly demographics that do not have documents is considered. So vouching, for instance, has been considered under GPG 45, but also that element of choice. So, for example, where we work in the states of Jersey, there is always a really helpful fallback in that you have a parish hall or a, you know, a similar structure within a few miles of citizens. One of the parallels in the UK is, for instance, in the UK, we have post offices in you know, a great variety of spots across the country. And so the form of in-branch verification that you can do in a post office might be something that could help that inclusion of demographics across society that might not always have either the, the devices themselves, the bandwidth, or the digital skills to comfortably do that type of verification. But as you say, there are wider questions. Some countries will, will solve that by mandatory approaches. Other countries will be more reflective of their society, of their history, of their culture, and have to find a different way through. And the UK is probably in that camp. Yes, and I think it's ultimately it's it's a balance, isn't it? It's how you balance privacy with the the need to to identify yourself, you know, to to give some kind of uh, you know personal information. Of course, we do this every day when we're uh, when we're shopping, for instance. Uh, we give uh, you know, the other big tech companies um, gigabytes of of data, personal data about ourselves, because it's a it's an exchange, isn't it? I give you this information, you give me something at a good price or a service I want or I want to access whatever whatever it is. But I understand that you have to have a certain level of information about me, and that's the actual balance. I think it's an interesting one when we look at, I guess, how a system could apply, because there will always be people that potentially could fall through the net. And I think you touched on, I guess, the obvious parallel is the unbanked. If you don't have a bank account, what do you do? And again, the post office sort of steps into that uh, as an easy way of, of maybe resolving that. But there will still be people that don't have a, a, sorry, a smartphone, who don't have uh, access to to these kinds of, of systems, um, which maybe a business said, well, this is how we identify yourself. If you can't use the system, we can't identify you, therefore we can't deliver the service. Is that not discrimination then? It's a very, very valid point, and one that I think the disabilities organisations, as well as um, people, you know, clearly in parts of the country that don't have Wi-Fi, don't have digital skills, don't have documents, you have some people that have uh, on top of that, you know, have all four. We talk about the four Ds, so documents, um, devices, disabilities, or different forms of diversity that can make that whole journey triply, quadruply difficult. And each of those demographics are ones that, that, that deserve equity in this approach. It's something that is not an overnight solution, but I think there are there are different angles that are being pursued. So you you have, for example, lower cost documents such as, for example, the citizen cards and pass cards. So at the moment, for instance, um, those can be obtained by eighteen and nineteen year olds for for free in the UK via citizen card. If you look in Scotland, they are provided free to young people aged eleven or twelve through their schools as almost like an entitlement card. How people have that root document is different in different parts of the UK at the moment. There's not an equity or parity there. 
how we help support people with disabilities, looking at accessibility, the WCAG, the um, WCAG 2.1 AA level for accessibility for identity is something that the industry as a whole needs to much move more closely towards to enable people with a vast range of disabilities to access digital identification services. The vouching approach that has been suggested through GPG 45, the Good Practice Guide, and through the trust framework might involve in the future you going to a local council office or premise where you are known or recognised, might involve another member of the community vouching, which if you think back to getting out a passport, it's, you know, I do declare that this is a true likeness of X, Y, Z. Um, it's somebody declaring that. So those forms have to be looked at. But yes, there'll be households with a shared device. There will be households without documents and people with those additional challenges. And it is imperative um, that a society that sees this gradual move in the same way as with banking looks at those different challenges. And that has to be something whereby government, but also businesses look at that wider public interest and look at how, you know, what are the angles around that? We've also been considering this wider, you know, goal 16.9 from the Sustainable Development Goals is providing a legal identifier to all, to those people around the world, the billion plus that do not have a form of government issued identity. Women predominance in the global scythe that don't even have a birth certification that's paper, you know, not to mention other, um, you know, probably hundred dollar plus security documents. And part of the, you know, the price of those documents has been driven up because they've had to have more security features in order to be not too easy to defraud. So there is a, you know, a large cost involved in getting out that base of documents across those populations equitably, which is why it is one of the SDG challenges. We could spend an hour just on that one, day. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, I think the UK is... I guess it's lucky in a way. I mean, we, we have a history, you know, hundreds of years. We record everything, don't we? You know, birth, death, marriages. If it's recordable, we record it. Uh, you know, we have we have you know, acres of of documentation. Um, also, of course, as you say, we we have uh, you know, yeah, the the passport, which has been around for 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 a while. Um, and I always think. Uh, my driving license is almost like ID by stealth because it's a photo ID, but it's not seen that way. It just proves that I can drive legally. And it was interesting when I renewed it, uh, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago. I, again, had to go to a, p- a physical post office and they took my photo for, for the for the ID itself. So again, there was that physical check that you are the person that's uh, on this plastic card. Um, you know, that physical check again. Uh, and again, with passports, uh, you know, the biometrics have to be set up physically, don't they, uh, for, for, for the passport. So we're, we're kind of uh, ahead of the game, I think, in um, what we can actually do with that, which kind of leads me into, I guess, talking about legislation. I, I, I mentioned uh, um, in my uh, sort of question list, which I, I sent over to you, uh, Julie, that uh, you know, we have the Online Safety Bill and the Age Appropriate uh, you know, Design Code, these kinds of things. Could you, I guess, put that in the context of businesses? With legislation like that in the framework of our conversation, what should businesses be really paying attention to? when we talk about identification and all of that kind of thing, particularly in digital spaces? Paying attention specifically to the legislation coming down the line is really important. And even if it's maybe parallel to the field you're in at the moment. So um, there were over 100 people yesterday on a call that the government held, which is explaining the upcoming right to work and right to rent changes, whereby um, it will be deemed a statutory excuse to be able to um, provide your identification details digitally 
in order to prove that you do have the right to work or you do have the right to rent in the UK from April of this year using approved method, which will have been audited by an approved auditor from UCAS and then approved subsequently by DCMS. And that could be happening as soon as April this year. So a lot of other sectors will have that eye on that. In the same way as last year, the move by the land registry to accept digital identity in that flow. You have upcoming disclosure and borrowing. If you think of you know, volunteering across the country, the, the safety needed for hiring people in sensitive positions to you know, look after children, look after the elderly, etc., where these DBS checks are required. The fact that DBS is in turn going to be relying on the trust framework that has evolved and using that in its process to enable volunteers to go through volunteering checks using digital identity. That should set a chain reaction in many business leaders' minds that the world is changing, that the streamlining of of how onboarding can happen and how repeat authentication can happen is evolving and that the UK has spent quite a lot of time and effort from industry civil society bodies and government to de- you know to develop this trust framework you've similarly got sandboxes for retail age verification going live and in supermarkets across the UK people will be proving just the fact that they're old enough over 18 to access certain age restricted goods such as alcohol pharmaceuticals etc using digital forms of identification not requiring in every instance albeit during the pilot there might be you know, people around looking, but not requiring in every instance a human one-to-one face-to-face check and sharing a physical document, looking at the next forms of, of ways to do that. All of those trials will, will, will be surveyed and that um, will then hopefully lead to the Home Office looking at a review of the Alcohol Licensing Act, which up until now has required that in-person face-to-face check in the same way that right to work and right to end previously required a face-to-face check. But during COVID, lots of business leaders have said in the retail area, my staff are facing abuse. In the other area for recruitment, I'm hiring people remotely. They're starting remotely. So when am I going to do this face-to-face check? So lots of business leaders in different sectors either are aware or should be becoming aware that these changes are happening. The dominoes are starting to move. It's an interesting, I guess, conversation with who's in the room when this kind of thing is debated. For you, when you're speaking to people that come to the RT for, you know, for assistance and, and insight, had it used to be you had conversations with the compliance officer and now suddenly you know, the CTO is also in the room because it clearly impacts on them as well. And maybe in the CIO is in the room as well and probably HR is in the room as well. And all of these people obviously are being pulled in different directions. They have different challenges for themselves and different priorities. So do you see that setting up as a uh, friction there or actually having all those people in the same room is a massive advantage when you're actually trying to think about how you're going to do identification in the digital space. It really is a market change. You're absolutely right. I think part of the discussion that has been happening around platforms and the responsibility of platforms is is awakening interest at the C-suite. 
And we've been in discussions, for example, if you look at the upcoming legislation around age and the age-appropriate design code, where we've had CEO level, we've had chief marketing officers, we've had people from the trust yeah, and safety. Yeah, I forgot about um, the marketing guys. Yeah, I forgot about those guys. Yeah, as well as the technical, and it goes across the board because, particularly with the with the with the prospect of director level liability or responsibility on the cards being talked of in different parts of the world, that is awakening that interest that this really is something that cannot be hidden behind the carpets. Keep up to date with the latest tech news and read in-depth features by subscribing to the Silicon UK newsletter. Businesses are saying, okay, we we, we understand, um, uh, I guess, our responsibilities, um, but you know, where's the book going to stop? Um, where it may have been, sorry, Gov, it's not us. Yeah, it's it's the tech, it's not us. But actually, sorry, but you're going to have to own it. It's 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 going to have to be a responsibility for you to to pay attention to this 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 stuff, which kind of leads me on to, I guess, another question, which is, for me. The big technology, I guess, for the for the next couple of years is going to be AI. Really, what we when we say AI, it's really about machine learning, isn't it? And how those systems are being kind of bolted onto literally anything that a business is actually trying to do. Now, from your point of view, does that open a lot of issues with digital identity? Or actually, it opens an interesting avenue of development because that kind of technology could actually be very useful when I want to try and identify myself. So there are a whole range of different technologies under the hood in digital identity and or age systems, and they they you know they, they vary hugely. But I would say across the board, as you you know you rightly say, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know we we look at the human rights elements, the consumer rights, the last mile tech, the accessibility, the online harms. We look at you know how can you make this transparent. How can you show that you are competent and look at the, you know, the data elements, the cybersecurity elements, the inclusion? How can you deliver what you're delivering with integrity? And, and that, you know, across the board, irrespective of which type of technology is under the hood for a specific product is, is really key. Absolutely with AI. And I think, you know, that, that is just the nature of where we are on the curve for that technology. And, you know, rightly so. There should be scrutiny, but there should be scrutiny in all of the delivery. In the same way as we've been relying for a long time and thinking, oh, paper documents, that's fine. Really, there probably should have been some more scrutiny that the emperor had no clothes, that actually that wasn't always the best way to go. So I think across the board with technology, that is important. Now we're obviously marrying the meta space with AI, with identity, with age, with entertainment, you know, so you really increasingly need to be looking very broadly at your governance and your data responsibility and all the security angles. Well, that's an interesting one, because that was kind of, I guess, where this stuff could actually evolve to, uh, I'm sure you 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 uh, you watched uh, Zuckerberg's uh, presentation, uh, you know, last year about uh, really how they envision the metaverse. Now, did that scare you to death, or did they actually say, actually, if it evolves the way they think it will evolve, or the way Facebook would like it to evolve, actually that gives us yet another layer of potential security which we could exploit. So it's interesting. I mean, I think the sobering flip side to that testimony was the testimony from Francis Hogan. And I think as a planet, we owe a debt of responsibility for some of these people that have stood up 
and given the flip side of the coin, irrespective of how uncomfortable that might have been for um, probably senior managers at that company. And that, I think, is what companies have to look at, that they probably do have a good chunk of very ethically minded, respectful people in their midst. And those people, hopefully, will have taken you know, some degree of comfort from the fact, yes, this was potentially um, just explaining a different side and showing showing things in a different light. So we, we all know that, you know, businesses around the world have, have at the moment mainly to look at their shareholders and look at look at how they deliver a return. I think the flip side is that regulators have to look at how that is done well and that is done with all of those elements of competence but inclusion with fairness and you know respecting the law. And we have to have a regulatory system that is up to date. There are, I think, now moves afoot for regulators around the world to absolutely be much more clued in. I, I felt at times like Francis Hogan was delivering the, the 101 masterclass for, <laughs> yes. for a lot of people around the world to actually understand yes. more yes. the business model. Um, well, it's it's complex. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's complex. Absolutely. Yeah. So whilst I wouldn't say I, you know, I, I didn't take any of it lightly, I don't think any of us should. I think we have to look at the potential and always the positives because the digital world is with us. We always have to look at how can we safeguard people but not shackle them. You know, this digital world is with us. So we have to look at how we enable people to meet their potential. We use the potential, but try and at the same time put some guardrails in. Well, that's an interesting one as well because I also wanted to ask you that because there's lots of stuff in development and there's lots of ways you could do identification and uh, you know, and all the stuff that comes with that. But ultimately, I feel we can't make it too complex. If it's too complex, no one's going to use it. It all kind of collapses back to loads of security issues and stories I've read over the years. A business puts some, something in place and the people that are supposed to use it don't because it's just too, too hard. Um, so they just collapse back and use the same password and the same username for everything because it's just easier to do. Um, so for you, is, is, is that the thing? It's, it's a case of, yeah, all of these technologies are developing, but don't forget the people that have got to use this. If you make them jump through too many hoops, it will fail. It has to be an easy system to, to implement, but supported with very strong technology. And that could be automated, technology could be AI, it could be whatever it is. But the front end for you and I, it, you know, it has to be an easy thing to implement, doesn't it? Yes, you know, split those two, and I think you did it in, in your last sentence there. The technology itself can be incredibly complex. How you explain it to people, the user interface, the user experience, that has to be straightforward, written in plain English, and has to be something that people can get to the answers they want to get to, can have faith in it, um, but has to be explained clearly. And I think one of the things that, that we've learned through looking at the age-appropriate design code and when we were looking at how do you make things understandable by young people, is that actually if you make something understandable by 11-year-old, then actually that level of language is universal. So people may be where that language is not their first language, um, people with, with other issues, people that you know, have done PhDs in, in tech should be able to understand. And if you can explain something simply, most of our broadsheets are written at a you know, yeah. linguistic level. Well, it's interesting, that, isn't it, Julie? That, um, that, that whole thing about explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old um, 
is not dumbing down. It's not. It's no. not uh, any kind of. Uh, I'm not saying you you won't understand this stuff. That your you know your intelligence isn't good enough to understand. That's not what that means. It's it's a, it's explaining this stuff so you can access whatever service you need, identify yourself. But this is how you need to do it. Um, and how you how you craft those messages has to go hand in hand with the technology itself, doesn't it? That's kind of what you're you're speaking. You're, you're, you know, that's that's really what you're talking about, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, usually with these kind of conversations, I guess if you've got your crystal ball out, uh, Julie, where do you think we're going to be in a, in a few years' time? Are you confident that, I guess, the technology will be there? I can identify myself. Businesses will have systems in place. They'll understand the regulation, which is in place to, to govern that. And ultimately, we have systems uh, at the sharp end, which you and I access, uh, whatever they look like, if they're biometric or whatever it is. Do you think it's a positive space that we're going to be in a few years' time where the whole issue of deep fakes, identifying myself and rogue actors, that's all going to go away because the systems will be in place. Are we there yet or do we really need to have another conversation in a couple of years? I think this is going to be an ongoing challenge. You know, the, 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 the world of, of fraudsters are not going away anywhere and the, the challenges will continue to, in, to increase we need, I think, to be very sure that across the companies developing responses to these challenges and, and developing solutions for consumers, that we have a, a better balance of brains driving that through so that we are thinking through all the different angles. One, on the angle of, 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 in, of inclusion and equity that we talked about earlier, that other side of making it inclusive and understandable across the population, but absolutely the, the threat and attack vectors I think on the contrary, what we're seeing is is that, that those are, are increasing exponentially. And that is, the, that is the challenge. One of the things I think we're needing to see and starting to see, however, is cross governments around the world understanding that they cannot act in a silo. I'm not going to solve this just for one country. Yes, I can maybe only design my legislation for one country, but then those legislators are actually rightfully exchanging notes and having groups across them that are looking at, well, how are you dealing with enforcement, given how you've implemented it? Maybe there's some things that we can learn from there. I think looking at the recent Singapore-UK digital identity sandbox, we haven't you know, heard a lot of the detail underneath that. But mm, looking yep, at how yep. those two geographies look at digital identity and implement it, I think there are about seven different countries or areas around the world looking at that. We've also had trust frameworks um, that have been developing globally. Look at the Velocity Network Foundation for employment credentials. Look at what help happened with the Good Health Pass Collaborative, where over 150 competitive organisations worked together to devise a blueprint for health credentials based on the W3C health credentials, but building on a lot of the trust framework work around the world. So that sort of thing does give me hope that companies can put their individual interests Aside looking at the wider public interest and, of course, looking at how they can be part of something bigger going forwards. So those are the sorts of collaboration that give me some faith. I think so. And it's an interesting debate, isn't it? Uh, I guess how you build these systems. Is it going to be, in effect, a, a walled garden? Come to us, uh, use our system, and it's not compatible with anybody else's. But I think what you're saying really globally it's more of a open source approach that we have to have some kind of common frameworks or common foundations the identity i'm using in the uk is applicable elsewhere 
if that was ever possible. Uh, but of course, in the digital space, there aren't any boundaries. Uh, you know, I can access a, a, a say a, a store in in Japan, for instance, and buy something there. Um, I still need to identify myself, but how does that work? So is it is it that? Um, I, I guess ultimately the the future is that it's more collaboration with with companies because they have to. They, you know, no one's going to go and say, oh, I have to set up my identity with with you separately when I want to use your service or buy from you, and. Over time, I have hundreds of these. That's not going to work. Um, so maybe some kind of agreed foundation, like the open source movement, again, is a good blueprint, I guess, is kind of how the, the technology itself will kind of evolve because it kind of has to. It's a really interesting debate, the whole open source debate, and that, again, we could have another whole hour on. But I definitely think that the standards underneath, such as W3C, have been something that have been fundamental to the way forwards. We're still probably at a stage where um, we are looking at how this world evolves. You, you mentioned driving licenses before, and that being for you almost a de facto proof of, 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 of identity, despite the fact that that might not be considered the case by our DVLA. But there are governments around the world that are looking at how digital driving license evolve. And then if I was a UK shopkeeper and someone had a Nevada driving license that was digital, might I in a few years think, well, that is just as good. I will take that as a proof of age. That type of de facto acceptance, if you found that the fraud rates or the the reputation of that was pretty good, could that mean that overnight adding a, a driving license to your X or Y or Z wallet, some of which might be from a global platform, some of which might be a digital, a reusable digital identity, start to become new ways that people can prove who they are or how old they are. And our competition and markets bodies, in the same way as they looked at Libra for financial services a few years ago, at that stage did not think that they wanted financial services linked to a social network. One of the things that might pan out is obviously that social networks do think they have a role to play in identification. Another angle could be that as you say, the driving license starts to have a different discussion. It was used under the previous Gov.Verify in the UK as something that could be checked against. Given that there is, there is a higher fraud propensity with a driving license, fewer security features, then actually being able to check to a driving license database is really useful. Australia, the US offers that today. So I think that's another interesting area that I know there are already strong discussions about in a number of countries around the world. How can that be part of combating fraud, enabling yes-no checks against those databases? You mentioned registries such as birth registries earlier. How can those registries, again, on a yes-no basis by organisations that have gone through specific audits, the sort of UCAS approach with the trust framework comes to mind, how can that start to be opened up? And then you string those things together. W3C credentials, having gone through different audits, taken part in trust frameworks. If you look at the moment, there's an interoperable EU consent project looking interoperable age verification and parental consent across Europe. This is a first similar to the work that the Good Health Pass and those other organisations have done. It's bringing competitors to work together with academics, with civil society to look at how a new approach could happen. Yes, I think multi-factor is the future because I'm seeing that more and more. A lot of the sites maybe a year ago that didn't ask for anything other than a username and a password. Now they want a, um, you know, a, a, a authentication with my phone. So they ping my phone with a, you know, with a, with a code. 
So in effect, that's three pieces: my username, my, my password, and this card. But that seems to be that seems to be the way forwards. Uh, it's a it's a group of uh, identifiers uh, which tag me as me, and those are um, recognised uh, by either, either government or, or uh, businesses as. Um, as a, a trustworthy uh, exchange of information. That's, that seems to be the, the way forward. There won't be just one piece of data which identifies um, me because of the, there's, I guess there's too many issues where that can be corrupted. Whereas it's very difficult to corrupt three pieces of data or four pieces of data. But I would loop back to what I said earlier. When we start to get into more touch points, it becomes more difficult. And then people start to think about, well, how can I make that easier for, for myself to get around the system, which of course makes them then completely useless if you're trying to get around the system. But I think it's interesting. I think the, the whole thing is is evolving so so quickly. Now, businesses are, they, they understand their responsibilities. And of course, they, they're looking at, at sort of post-COVID and what that means with, as you say, with, with recruitment, with uh, how they uh, contact their, their customers, how they um, uh, really identify who they are, particularly if it's, if it's an exchange of goods or services uh, you know, for, uh, for, for money. Um, but I think the space is just evolving, and I think I think really what you're saying is just pay attention to to read the landscape and then look at how the bits of that apply to your your business, and more importantly, how then your business communicates that with uh, with your users or with your customers or you know with your staff. Just pay attention to how that shifts. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point that you, you mentioned there, the, the sort of movements and things that you see changing. So we're one of the rare companies that have set up a reusable digital identity and offer alongside a one-off usage. And that's something that a few years ago, it was a very different landscape. The concept of over you know 11 million people having set up a reusable way, they set it up once, can reuse it. We still have organisations that would prefer a one-off check, but increasingly, we're seeing that they would like to try both in parallel. And the more that the network of the reusable digital identity grows, the more that becomes attractive. And some organisations initially think, oh, that might be too much friction. However, what we're seeing is that is starting to change. In, in the states of Jersey, over 55% of the, the population of adults there actually have uh, a YOTI app to access public sector okay. and private yep. sector. And you start to see a different dynamic. So I think also our, recently our partnership with the, the, the post office in the UK, again, the, the Easy ID and the Yoti ID are, are two different wallets that actually can, can interoperate. And a lot of the functions um, that, that, that are being offered there are ones that, for instance, employers looking at right to work, right to rent, have have a, a different route than they had previously in order to avail of that reusable digital identity and to explain that to their consumers, the customers, that that can be a simple approach. They might be using it to pick up a parcel one day, to go for a job another day, and later down the year maybe for, for DBS or, or, or other access. So it starts to be something very different if then at the weekend you're also getting your bottle of wine at the supermarket. Uh, well, the, I guess the other thing I, I wanted to, uh, I guess, touch on as well was uh, obviously biometric, etc. And I really wanted to get your your thoughts, whether you felt that 
ultimately, um, you know, face recognition and using, you know, this unique thing which we all have really is the foundation of a lot of these security systems which are being developed. And if if that's something that can be, I guess, trusted, especially in the conversation that that, uh, that we're having about trust, privacy, and how all of that and identification within the digital space, you know, yeah, is 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 you know, is my face ultimately, um, you know, going to be the uh, the, the kind of de facto, um, I guess, biometric for uh, for for these systems? Only area that is again very innovative, and people have often mistaken is around the use of facial age estimation to prove age. So one of the big areas of inclusion that we looked at was if you can't, as an adult, buy an age-restricted good, that is actually quite demeaning. And in the UK, we have 24% of adults, 33% of young people with no you know, photo ID. So hence, we devised an approach just with a face that people can look in the camera or do a selfie and that image be instantly assessed And crucially, that it's facial analysis, not facial recognition. It's not identifying uniquely or authenticating any one individual. And then that image is deleted and they can prove they're just over the agreed age to buy an age-restricted good. So one of the things we've done over this last period is explain that really simply, how it was actually built under the hood, that through the Yoti digital identity platform, we've had now you know over 11 million people go through. And in the process, they can, at the time of setting up the Yoti, say if they don't want their image to be used to, for this type of R&D, or subsequently at any point. But through that, we now have an incredible level of accuracy. So people without documents, or those with them, but just don't fancy using them at that time, can just actually look it can the the tech can then assess a new face and instantly delete it it's it's been taught the ground truth through hundreds of thousands of images this is definitely a 10 or a 40 year old so when it sees a new face it can just assess it and delete the image we've also extended that for the 6 to 13s and in both cases for your sort of 6 up to about 24 it's within about one and a half years of accuracy and back to what you were saying about you know, the metaverse going forwards. One of the key things as both a a parent and working in in this sort of safety tech landscape is, you know, how do we look after the more vulnerable young people? How do we not tether them, but ensure that the content, the contact, the conduct is appropriate and age appropriate? And I think this whole area of age appropriate design is really a sort of a, a juggernaut coming through that does have the potential to ensure we haven't got five-year-olds streaming to 50-year-olds. We're not having notifications popping up at midnight in your kid's you know, bedroom that we, are, we can turn off geolocation, ensure that the language is written age-appropriately. All of those things, you know, stop adverts for Viagra coming into five-year-olds' emails or um, during games. All of those types of things are possible once you know the age of the person. A few years ago, the rhetoric was that is not possible. We know from Francis Hogan's testimony that it definitely is possible. And we know from companies like ours that have published transparently how good this is across gender, across skin tone. And I think that is something that is quite forward thinking. It is something that across games console manufacturers, gaming companies, social media, live streaming, is really being considered strongly. And that, I think, has been driven in a positive way by, one, the legislation, but two, all the scrutiny that has happened over this last year across a wide range of platforms. So 
across the facial technologies, there's detection, analysis or characterization, and then people often bundle together the one-to-one and one-to-many facial recognition. And I think one of the things that we've been working hard to explain to people is that there are systems for facial age analysis, facial characterization that don't touch on the one-to-one recognition, don't touch on the one-to-many. And so there's not surveillance. And that is something actually we've seen really positive change in the organizations and journalists and bodies and consumers we've spoken to over the last year when we've explained this is not identifying you. So it is not in the classic sense of the former biometric one-to-one or one-to-many recognition. The way the system is, AI system is trained is it, it's learnt what 10 and 40-year-olds look like. So when a new face comes along, it detects the human face and then it analyzes it and then it instantly deletes it. And that, I think, is, is, is the crucial element that across facial technologies, we start to explain those nuances. You have been listening to a Silicon UK in Focus podcast. Keep up to date with the latest tech news and read in-depth features by subscribing to our newsletter. I'd like to thank Julie for taking the time to speak to Silicon UK. It's goodbye from me, Dave Hull, and it's goodbye from Julie. Thank you.